Equip 23. Seeing your response. <laughs> I'm acting like you should know what I'm talking about. That is the name, among other things, one of the, one of the many things that we accomplished, I should say, at our staff retreat this week was to give a name to what our emphasis is going to be over the next several months. Uh, the, our desire, our calling, the need to make sure you understand what your gift is, gifts, I should say. You, what you find is that you probably have multiple spiritual gifts, uh, two or three at least, maybe one stronger than the other. But what your gifting is and what that means for your life how that changes how you view life and ministry, but also to make sure that you are plugged into an area of service where God can use you, use the gifts and the abilities, which are different than gifts, abilities you're born with, spiritual gifts you're given when you receive the Holy Spirit, when you receive Christ. But those things are to be used to glorify God through areas of service. And we're going to talk a lot about that over the next several months. We're going to talk to our leaders about that here in a couple of weeks. And we're going to go step by step through this process and helping all of you determine your giftedness and how you're supposed to use that. But one of the ways to know where you're gifted and what your abilities are is to ask a question. It's not the only way, but to ask a question. What is it that you're passionate about? And what is it? There are things that I like in life, and there are things that I'm passionate about. When it, as it relates to ministry and service, even as a, as a pastor, there are things that I do because it's part of my responsibilities. I may enjoy those. Some I may not. I won't tell you what those things are, but there's some things I enjoy, but there are some things that I'm really really passionate about doesn't mean that one's more important than the other it just has to do with where I'm gifted and where God uh, the the gifts and abilities he's given me and what really gets me going in terms of ministry there's something in your life or a few things in your life you may not even know it yet but there are things that you are passionate about and some of you are thinking about those things right now There are things that God has given you, where areas where he's gifted you, where he's given you abilities that you can use for his service to make an impact in our world, in your world, for his kingdom. And that's our series that we're in, making an impact in our world for the kingdom of God. That's what we've been talking about, knowing where you are called, what you're called to do, and by the power and strength of the Holy Spirit working in and through you, working in and through us as a church to make an impact for his kingdom. And that involves faithfulness. We have to be faithful to what God has called us to do. We are focusing on being faithful, knowing that if we do, we will leave a legacy for the Lord. If I'm faithful to God and his calling on my life, then he will take care of the legacy. So that's what we've been talking about. This morning, we're going to look at 2 Samuel, and we're going to look at some passages from chapters 12 through 18 of 2 Samuel. Now, let me give a disclaimer this morning, okay? I do this uh, every now and then if, if the message is a little bit uh, mature. And this passage, these passages of Scripture probably deserve somewhere around a PG-13 rating, okay? Just so you know, it gets into some pretty tough uh, subject. I mean, the material's pretty tough in some areas, so just, just know that. 
uh, going in. If you have uh, younger children here in the room, uh, you may have to have some conversations later. It's, it's not too terribly uh, mature, but there are some difficult areas of Scripture. But we can't, we can't ignore those areas just because they're difficult, because there's some valuable lessons here. Now, David is king at this time, and as we know, he was a man after God's own heart. He was a man after God's own heart. His integrity um, was above most of, if not all, of his contemporaries. But we know that David wasn't perfect, right? David made mistakes like we all do. And some of David's mistakes were pretty large mistakes. Uh, one of them uh, one of them was sin with Bathsheba. One, one of them was the fact that he had as many wives as he did. He broke God's commandment. One man, one woman for a lifetime. And we see in Scripture where kings like David had several wives. And the temptation is to think that God was okay with that. But I've said this before, just because the Bible reports it doesn't mean it supports it. As a matter of fact, if you look in Deuteronomy 17, 17, God commanded Israel's kings not to build harems. I mean, they weren't supposed to have multiple wives, God's people, God's leaders especially, but all of God's people. Now, in the day and time, it was socially acceptable to do this, but it was not acceptable to God. Even so, David had several wives, several concubines. And as we'll see, he kept his dynasty, David's dynasty, from becoming all that God would have allowed had David obeyed God in this area. And we're going to see a concrete example of the perils of David's sin in this area in our story today, in our message today. David fathered a number of sons through all of these wives and concubines, and one of these sons was named Absalom. And we're going to take a look at Absalom this morning and David's relationship with him. His name, Absalom's name, means father of peace, which is going to become ironic as we go through the story here, but that's what it it means. And this morning, we're going to see both the rise and the fall of Absalom, and from that, we're going to look at the markers of Absalom's life that led to his downfall, so hopefully we can learn lessons from that. Uh, The first marker is this, Absalom... His childhood was filled with dysfunction, as you can imagine. Many wives, many concubines. Absalom is one of the many children that David had through these wives and concubines. David's kingdom had grown. His friends who had remained loyal to him when he was on the run uh, were now reaping the benefits of the wealth and the power that David had attained, that God had given David. These were his band of brothers, these elite men, um, these, these 30 that we really looked closely at in the first message in this series. Um, a man named Eliam gave his daughter Bathsheba to one of David's mighty men, as they were called, Uriah. He was a member of this close group of, of followers David had. He also gave, David gave Uriah, as a result, uh, an estate um, because of his faithfulness, because of his loyalty. He gave him an estate just behind the palace. And then he gave Eliam's father an important role as one of his chief advisors. He was basically the secretary of state for David, if you want to kind of put it in the context of our government. His name was Ahithophel. Now, David 
stayed busy, as you would imagine, as king. He had a lot going on. He defeated the Philistines. He conquered Moab, Edom, Ammon, and Aram. And he also wiped out a number of invading armies that would attempt to defeat them. When David wasn't conquering or building the kingdom, he was lost in endless estates affair. I mean, you know, he was constantly dealing with the government, constantly being counseled, constantly making decisions, planning. And then when they were at war, he was constantly leading that war effort. So he was a busy guy. And the problem with this was you match his schedule with the number of wives and children that he had, there was no way he could be an attentive father to all of those children. No way. And wives. And so all of his family suffered because of his choice to have all of these wives and all of these children, which was contrary to God's plan for husbands and wives. One man, one woman forever. Not multiple of either, okay? And so David makes this choice to go with what the world thinks is okay and what was expected of kings in this time. Instead of obeying God and his family suffers, particularly his kids suffer as a result of this. And this is the environment that Absalom grows up in. All of these wives living together can't imagine there would be any jealousy or bickering going on. But Absalom's right in the middle of all of this. An absentee father, for the most part, certainly doesn't have a strong relationship with him. And this is the environment that Absalom grows up and lives in. But during an uncharacteristic lull in David's life, when he was supposed to be at war, we know the story. He sees Bathsheba bathing on a roof, Uriah's wife, And this was the estate that he had given Uriah behind the palace. He sees her bathing, and then he has an affair with her. He sleeps with her. She becomes pregnant, and what does David do? He begins this campaign to cover up this sin, ultimately having Uriah, one of his faithful, mighty men, closest confidants in this group, he has him killed to try to cover this sin up. So a man after God's own heart commits, we see two grave mistakes here. The decision to have the wives and all of the children, and then the decision to sin against God, and then beyond that, cover up that sin, which leads to murder. But as soon as Bathsheba ends her time of mourning, David makes her his wife, yet another wife. But that wasn't the end of it. The son they had together dies. And Nathan the prophet says this to David in 2 Samuel 12, verses 11 and 12. This is what the Lord says. I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes. Now, pay attention to this. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes. And he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. Now keep that in your mind as we continue through the story here. David had repented. God had forgiven him. God had restored him, but there were still going to be consequences for his sin. I mean, you know, the palace, David's kingdom would never be the same after this sin. And it tells us an important truth. 
Sins can be forgiven, and if we ask for forgiveness, we'll receive it, but consequences cannot be avoided. And David has to suffer the consequences for his actions. And all of this, during all of this, Absalom enters adulthood in this environment, surrounded by all of these wives, all of these other children. He probably already had resentments toward his father for not being there and not having the relationship that he would like to have for him. And then he finds out that his father had taken advantage of someone else's wife and then sins in covering it up and becomes a murderer. So any resentment that Absalom had toward David, you can imagine would grow into hatred and bitterness through all of this. He nurtures it, Absalom does. And in tragic homes like this, where the parents make awful decisions or are absent altogether, when there's multiple siblings, what usually happens is the brothers and sisters lean on each other and depend on each other for support emotionally and, and to, to have that connection that they're missing with their parents a lot of times. And this is exactly what happens with Absalom and one of his sisters who's named Tamar. They become extremely close to each other in this dysfunctional environment. And as chapter 13 begins... We see Absalom has become a bitter, angry man. And what happens next would cause him just to completely snap. Let's look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13. Some time passed. David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. And David's son Amnon was infatuated with her. Amnon was frustrated to the point of making himself sick over his sister Tamar because she was a virgin, but it seemed impossible to do anything to her. So Amnon, David's oldest son, falls in love with Tamar, who is his half-sister, which is, of course, a (laughs) no-no. This is all wrong. But then comes, and he knows it is, but then comes along a guy named Jonadab who convinces him to do whatever he wants with his half-sister. He encouraged him, encourages Amnon to act on his lust. Look at verses 6 and 7. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be sick. When he came to see him, when the king came to see him, Amnon said, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my presence so I can eat from her hand. David sent word to Tamar at the palace, Please go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare a meal for him. Bring the meal to the bedroom, Amnon told Tamar, so that I can eat from your hand. Tamar took the cakes she had made and went to her brother Amnon's bedroom. When she brought them to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, Come sleep with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she cried, don't disgrace me, for such a thing should never be done in Israel. Don't commit this outrage. Verse 13, where could I ever go with my humiliation? She says, and you, you would be like one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Please speak to the king For he won't keep me from you. What a strange thing for Tamar to say there at the very end. David wouldn't keep them apart. This was wrong. David would have known it was wrong. If that's true, David had either lost his mind or any sense of authority over his family. And we don't know for sure, but it's strange that she would be led to believe that he wouldn't keep them apart. Unfortunately, Tamar's reasoning didn't stop Amnon. 
Verse 14, he refused to listen to her. And because he was stronger than she was, he disgraced her by raping her. And when he finished satisfying his lust, his lust for her turned to hatred because of what he had done. And he said to her, get up and go away, in verse 15. Now look at the reaction of the men in her life, verse 20. Her brother Absalom said to her, has your brother Amnon been with you? Be quiet for now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. So Tamar lived as a desolate woman in the house of her brother Absalom. When King David heard about these things, he was furious. Absalom didn't say anything to Amnon, either good or bad, because he hated Amnon since he disgraced his sister Tamar. Now, you look at that and say, David was furious. Well, he should be, but that's not enough. I mean, Amnon should have been exiled according to the law, according to the proper response. David should have been mad, yes, but he should have acted on that and he should have kicked his son out for what he had done. He should have been sent away in disgrace. But David doesn't do that. He should have been out of the land of Israel. And this would have made a bold statement to the entire community from David that this sort of thing is against God and it will not be tolerated. But instead of doing that, and I have to believe because of David's own past failures, he gets mad but does nothing else. That's all. No punishment. Nothing No consequences from David for Amnon. And Absalom sees all this, his closest sister. Nothing's done. David knows about it. He doesn't do anything. And the next events, as we see this story unfold, we're going to see that Absalom's choices after this led to rebellion. He's already bitter towards his father. He's nurtured that bitterness, that resentment. Now this happens to his sister. His dad does nothing about it except get angry. And so he becomes more and more bitter toward his father. And as we will see, unresolved sin and anger will eventually lead to tragedy. If you've got unresolved sin and anger in your heart, you can hide it and you can bury it, but it will never go away unless you deal with it. And we see this with Absalom. Maybe it may even lead to murder, as it does here. Look at verse 28 and 29 of 2 Samuel. Now, Absalom commanded his young men, watch Amnon until he is in a good mood from the wine. When I order you to strike Amnon, then kill him. Don't be afraid. Am I not the one who's commanded you? He said, I'll take the blame. Be strong and valiant. So Absalom's young men did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. And then all the rest of the king's sons got up and each fled on his mule. All of this leads to yet another murder. Something David probably did not want to pass down to his children. But nonetheless, it happens. Absalom kills Amnon and then Absalom goes into hiding. Verse 37, Absalom fled to and went to Talmai, son of Amahud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son every day. After Absalom had fled to Geshur and had been there three years, King David longed to go to Absalom, for David had finished grieving over Amnon's death. So Talmai was Absalom's maternal grandfather. So he goes and he hides out with grandpa for a few years because it's the only place he figures He's safe. And his position, David, he misses 
Absalom, but his position in all this seems kind of odd. Look at verse 23. Joab got up, went to Geshur, and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. However, the king added, he may return to his house, but he may not see my face. So Absalom returned to his house, but he did not see the king. So it's a little different from the story of the prodigal son, right? Look in Luke chapter 15, 24, the, the son who had sinned, who had basically said he wished his dad was dead. He goes off, but when he comes home, the father, because he, he, he watches and, and because he loves his son and misses his son, he's waiting for him. And then when he comes back, he embraces him, and then he throws a huge celebration. Verse 24 of Luke 15, Because the son of mine was dead and is alive again, he was lost and is found. So they celebrate when the older son's asking, you know, why this is going on? Why are you throwing such a big party for this son who disgraced you? That's the reception that he receives. But David basically says, yeah, he can come home, but I don't want to see him, and he doesn't need to see me. I don't want to see his face. He can come back. I miss him. He can come back, but he can't be around me. I won't allow it. So David's spirit becomes increasingly unforgiving, evidently, during those three years. But Absalom's life moves on. Verse 25 of chapter 14, No man in all Israel was as handsome and highly praised as Absalom from the sole of his foot to the top of his head. He did not have a single flaw. When he shaved his head, he shaved it at the end of every year because his hair got so heavy for him that he had to shave it off. He would weigh the hair from his head and it would weigh five pounds. So he had this beautiful head of hair. He grows up. He's handsome. He's got this beautiful head of hair. And so much so that when he shaves it off, it weighs five pounds. It gets so heavy, he, have to, he has to cut it. And that's how thick it is. And that's his defining characteristic. He's a handsome guy. He grows up. But on the inside, his spirit became a tangle of unresolved sin, resentment, bitterness, and so on. On the outside, he maintains a different facade. Look at verses 1 through 6 of 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot, horses, 50 men to run before him. He would get up early and stand beside the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone had a grievance to bring before the king for settlement, Absalom called out to him and asked, What city are you from? If he replied, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel, Absalom said to him, look, your claims are good and right, but the king doesn't have anyone to listen to you. He's undermining his father. He adds, if only someone would appoint me judge over the land, then anyone who had a grievance or dispute would come to me and I would make sure he received justice. When a person approached to pay homage to him, Absalom reached out his hand, took hold of him and kissed him. Absalom did this to all Israelites who came to the king for a settlement. So Absalom stole the hearts of men of Israel. So he's rebelling against his father. He puts together this plan to undermine him and to win the people's favor with justice. And so just as the prophet had predicted earlier, Nathan, the sword never departs from David's house. And it's going to get worse. When the king eventually does grant his son an audience in the previous chapter, the scripture tells us that Absalom bowed before his father and that David kissed him. Joab went to the king and told him. So David summoned Absalom, who came to the king and paid homage with his face to the ground before him. And then he kissed Absalom. Now that may sound tender, but that was basically a handshake in this culture. It wasn't a huge affectionate embrace. It's just what you did. And so it was very much superficial. And it did nothing to repair the relationship that was broken between David and Absalom. 
And there's some reasons we see here that Absalom would conspire against David. I'm not justifying it, but we understand why he may have done this. Absalom had an unresolved resentment, anger against David, certainly. And his father kept him at a distance. And because of the circumstances, he was unable to see his father for who he was. I I wonder, I just wonder how Absalom would have responded if David would have been open about his own failures to him and would have admitted where he had gone wrong and what led to his repentance and would have accepted his son back even though what he did was horrible. Nobody's justifying that. If he would have looked at what his son did in light of his own failures and or maybe even responded the right way in the first place when Amnon did what he did to Tamar, what, how might have that changed their relationship? We have we as parents, I think, have this mistaken notion that we have to appear, and I talked about this last week, we have, we have to appear like we've got it all together in front of our kids, like we never make mistakes, like we never do anything wrong. And listen, you can fool your kids when they're little with that, but when they get older, they're going to see the chinks in your armor, whether you want them to or not. They're going to see your failure. So, so better to teach them how to deal with failure and how to repent and to turn from sin, admit where you have fallen short, be transparent with your kids so that they can learn how to deal with it themselves because they're going to fail too. They're going to mess up. Whereas if I just pretend like I've got it all together and I'm never honest about when I mess up, they're going to be let down in an incredible way when they see me mess up unless I show them how to deal with that. David evidently did not do that. He didn't have time to do that with all the kids that he had, but he certainly didn't with Absalom. And what we see is our children want to love us deeply, but that requires unguarded vulnerability and painful authenticity. Now, I'm not talking about introducing your children to things before they're ready. I mean, a parent needs to know what to teach their kids and when, and that requires wisdom. But we need to be open and honest and authentic with our kids. Because if we're not, we can put on a face in front of some people. But when we're at home, they're going to see the real us. You can't hide forever. You can't pretend to be someone you're not forever. All Absalom, I have to believe all Absalom wanted was to know his dad. And he couldn't. Absalom's rebellion was probably also a part of a half-hearted response or David's half-hearted attempt at reconciliation. Absalom, he goes to him. Absalom, chapter 14, 32, he begs to see his father. And we see he prefers death to just living in limbo like he is. Now, considering all of this, is it any wonder that Absalom used justice to curry favor with the people to undermine his father. I'm not saying it was right, but we can understand why maybe he did what he did. There's a lot of irony here in the words that we read in chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. When the people would come to Absalom, he would give them justice. What would he do? Verse 5, when a person approached to pay homage to him, Absalom reached out his hand, took hold of him, and he kissed him. He's basically mocking his dad. Here. So that's exactly what David did to him. He's doing it to others, and his anger towards his father continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. And his choices are leading to rebellion. 
And it's here that we see Absalom's contempt leads to his demise. This could have been stopped at several points along the way, either by David or Absalom, but no one does either to repair the relationship that's broken between a father and son, and it leads to his demise. When Absalom finally was given freedom to Rome, Jerusalem, he sets up his own kingdom. He gains favor with the people by giving them the justice that they wanted, and he begins to gain more and more followers, so much so that David ends up running for his life. Absalom overthrows David's government for a time. And he, he sets his sights in this process on one of David's top advisors. And it's interesting who it is. It's Ahithophel. Remember who that is. Think back. Look at verse 12 of 15. While he was offering the sacrifices, Absalom sent for David's advisor Ahithophel, the Gilonite, from his city of, of Gallo. So the conspiracy grew strong and the people supporting Absalom continued to increase. He was probably, Ahithophel was just as illusioned with David as Absalom was. Can anybody remember who Ahithophel is? Remember, this was Bathsheba's grandfather. So Absalom knows exactly what he's doing here. And Ahithophel's not a happy camper when it comes to David, I'm imagining. So he becomes one of of Absalom's advisors. And then he's, he's a trusted advisor. And what he tells Absalom to do is interesting. I won't read all of these verses. But we see in 2 Samuel 16, Ahithophel tells Absalom, you need to take all of your fathers. Now, Absalom's, David's running for his life. Okay, he's, he's, he's fleeing. And Ahithophel tells Absalom, you need to get all of your father's wives. And you need to sleep with them on the roof. We're going to set up a tent, and this is what you're going to do in front of everybody. It will show that you are in charge, that you have taken over. So think back to the prophecy from Nathan. What did Nathan say was going to happen in chapter 12? He predicted this very thing. Now, he didn't say it was going to be his son, but he did say it would be from his own family. But his own son is doing this in front of the whole kingdom So once again, the decision to take all of these wives is coming back to haunt David. But his sin with Bathsheba was what led to all of this. I mean, this was the ultimate payback for Absalom to open up all these old wounds. And I I wish I could say this story had a happier ending, but unfortunately it doesn't. David rallied his loyal fighting men to regain the throne. He and Absalom's armies are in conflict And then the king, chapter 18, verse 5, commanded Joab, Abishai, and Atai, treat the young man Absalom gently for my sake. All the people heard the king's orders to all the commanders about Absalom. And David, he obviously had a lot of guilt over what had happened. So he wants the kingdom, he wants the throne back, but he doesn't want his son killed. But what we see in verses 9 through 15, again, I won't read all of those verses, but I I will zero in. On what Joab does here. He commands. Basically they have Absalom is hanging from a tree. Gets caught in a tree. So his defining characteristic comes back to haunt him. He gets hung in a tree. 
And some of David's men see him, but they don't kill him because David said not to. But Joab says, you know, I would pay you to do that. Why did you not kill him? In other words, it doesn't really matter what the king says. You, need to, you should have killed him. And so finally Joab says, I'm not going to waste any more time. Verse 14, he takes three spears in his hand and he thrusts them into Absalom's chest while Absalom was still alive. And then ten men who were Joab's armor bearers do, do the same thing. They struck him and killed him. And it leads to one of the saddest passages in all of Scripture, where David mourns over Absalom's death. Verse 33 of chapter 18, the king was deeply moved and went to a chamber above the city gate and wept. As he walked, he cried, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died instead of Absalom, my son, my son. You know, you just have to see Here in those words, the heartbreaking, heart-wrenching regret that David must have felt for how he handled his son and all of this, this whole situation. This is where we learn remorse is merely the pointless wish that we had done things different. But it was too late. Absalom's gone now. Three quick lessons that we learn here as we finish. An unhappy home produces unbalanced children. I'm not going to promise that if your home is healthy that your children won't have problems, okay? You can do all you can and they still have problems. But I can guarantee if you have an unhappy, unhealthy home, your kids will be unbalanced. I'm not talking about happy, ha ha all the time, but a safe, spiritually productive, teaching your kids about Jesus, modeling it in front of them, a safe, healthy marriage and home. And David certainly did not provide that for his children. You don't have to be perfect around the house. You don't have to be flawless. But you do need to be there investing in your family, investing in your kids, being intentional about all of that. Number two, a lack of parental discipline breeds insecurity and resentment in children. You know, they may not like it, but children long for an environment where they're going to be disciplined and where there's structure and where they're safe. Discipline creates that. You know, I, I think about it this way. I, I brought a wrench, and we, with a wrench, we tighten things up and loosen things, right? A bolt or something like that. Now, when we tighten something, when we, you've heard the phrase, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. That's how you remember which way. For you guys, it would be this way. For me, it's this way. So, righty-tighty, lefty-loosey. Now, when I'm turning something and I'm tightening it, I'm turning it away from being loose and I'm tightening it up. And that's what God does for us. He turns us away from sin and tightens us up spiritually. Sometimes that involves discipline. And he teaches us lessons in that. But he wants us to be be strong spiritually and to grow. And that's what we, you know, I think of tools. I think of all the times I spent with my dad growing up, working on something around the house, and him teaching me how to do those things. Even just by doing it himself. I observed, I saw, and that's what we have to do with our kids. We're not perfect in it. We never will be. But when it requires it, we have to discipline our children. If we don't, we're leaving them loose. We're exposing them. We're putting them in danger. But by disciplining them, we're tightening them up. By teaching them intentionally, investing in them. That's something David did not do for his kids. As much of a man of God as he was, he failed in this area and it hurt his family. I can't find one instance in Scripture where David disciplined his children. Maybe he did, 
But these are the examples we have, not where he disciplined them. And that's unfortunate. Number three, failure to repair broken relationships, inflict wounds that never heal. And we're talking about this applies to every relationship, but this we're talking about the family. If there is a relationship in your family that's broken, don't wait until it's too late to try to mend that. Now, you may do all you can to mend that relationship, and it certainly takes two people to do that. The other person may not be willing to do that. But if there's a relationship that's broken, don't wait. Our children, our families are a gift from God, and we should not take them for granted. Don't let resentment grow and hatred grow to where you do something that you'll regret for the rest of your life. Families require time. They require love. And I'm certainly not perfect in it. Mandy and I, we're not perfect in it. But our desire is to invest in our children. Our desire is to be real and authentic with our kids. Our desire is to discipline them and teach them. So maybe they'll learn from some of our mistakes. But to teach them about the Lord regularly, often, and to model it in front of their lives. But that means we have to be with them and we have to spend time with them and we have to do the things that even we don't want to do when it requires it and it comes to discipline and those types of things. That's the commitment that we have and certainly we have failed at different times. We joke that our kids are all going to write a book one day and all of our failures with them are going to be in a book. And y'all can read it later and I'm sure the books are going to be big. But our desire above anything else is not that we're our kids' best friends, is not that we win any popularity contests with them. Our desire is that our children grow up to love the Lord and to serve Him, and it would be nice if they were law-abiding citizens as well. <laughs> but sincerely, we want them to love the Lord, and we want them to live the life, leave a legacy for the Lord themselves, to know what God put them here for, to experience God's best for them, and to live out his plan for their lives. Because we know that's the only way they're going to be satisfied in this life. That's the only way they're going to be content. To have a relationship with God and to grow in that relationship. So where is, where, what's your temperature in all of this? I'm not asking for my own benefit. I don't need to know. But with your family, with your children. Are you leaving a legacy of faithfulness? In the Lord, are you avoiding the difficult conversations and the, the, the discipline that might make them not like you for a while? What needs to be repaired in the relationships you have with other family members? Have you done everything you can to repair that? What type of legacy do you want to leave for your kids and their grandkids for generations to come? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the legacy you've left us through your family. Your son, Jesus. Jesus, you came and you gave all. You sacrificed everything so that we could be saved. And, and, and beyond that, after we are saved, you continue to work on us and mold us and shape us and discipline us. We can become what you want us to be because of your work in our lives. And that's possible because of your death on the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. Lord, I pray that we would never take that for granted. And Father, I pray that for those of us here, if anyone's here who hasn't received that gift of salvation, that they would come during this invitation and make that decision. Let me share with them how to do that. Or if those of us here, we just all need to 
to allow you to evaluate our hearts. What type of legacy are we leaving for our families? What areas do we need to improve? What areas do we need to work on? Or just continue to teach us and help us to be willing to invest in our families and our kids. We want to be faithful. We want to be obedient so that they will discover who you are, fall in love with you, and fulfill your purpose for their lives and spend eternity with you once this life is over. Lord, we thank you for being patient with us, and I pray that you would give us strength and endurance with our children as well. We thank you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand for our time of decision?